Hello, deep thinkers. This is your host, Agrita, and welcome to Mindful of Everything, the podcast that questions the deeper and bigger things in life, from intersectional environmentalism to self-development and everything else in between. In this episode, I talk to Terry Huan, an active advocate for ending gender and sex-based violence, specifically criminalizing coercive control. She also is a host of Engendered Podcast that acts as a platform for survivors of domestic abuse and allies like myself wishing to gain more information on ways to actively support victims. As a survivor herself, Terry believes that one of the first steps in ending gender-based violence is learning the same language, especially in terms of the legal language used in domestic violence cases that can be very misleading and detrimental to the well-being of victims who majority of the time are women and children. Why does coercive control need to be criminalised? Um, a lot of people, including myself, had no idea that it's still not a criminal offence in the US. And a lot of people just don't understand the extent of damage that can be done because of coercion. So why does it need to be criminalised? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I just spoke with Jess Hill about this topic actually coincidentally yesterday I'm re-interviewing her for my podcast and she's uh, part of a group of people in Australia that are working to criminalize course control and uh, support its criminalization and I think you know one of the biggest issues is that criminalization sends a cultural signal to society that we care about men's violence against women, that the gendered impact of coercive control matters, especially now in the wake of this post-COVID quarantine that we've experienced, where all over the world there have been not just the increases in domestic violence rates because of quarantining in abusive situations, but also the negative impact it's had on women in terms of exacerbating gender inequalities. So workplace, uh, you know, pay gap inequities, the fact that healthcare workers on the front lines are disproportionately women, the fact that, um, you know, all of these uh, economic negative impacts are hurting women more than they are men, especially in the retail sector, you know, where most of the people there are women. And so it, you know, the, the healthcare impacts also are disproportionately hurting Mm -hmm. people of color and communities of color. So, you know, the, the fact that um, we are in this, at least in the U S you know, in this post George Floyd, um, highly sensitive to systemic racism and police brutality and racist policing that's been happening for decades. And there's been so much talk, rightly so, fully justified around the importance of integrating inclusion and diversity and anti-racism efforts and policies everywhere not just in criminal justice systems, but also in the workplace, right? That when I speak about uh, why we need to have anti-sexism trainings as well and an anti-sexist lens, in other words, a pro-feminist lens, especially and starting with the institutions that interact with survivors, so government, law enforcement, and of course, nonprofit agencies that work with survivors, and these groups of people come to the table with deaf ears, um, I think even though people who are closest to the survivors and the people who are being victimized, if they don't see the need, we definitely need a signaling that shows we care. Because a lot of them, I think, have become resigned from giving up year after year, recognizing that there's so much systemic sexism. They feel like it's too big a burden to respond to on their own. And so this cultural cultural signaling um, will provide a, a set of tools and a mechanism for enforcing all of the laws that we have in place, but also for helping to bring awareness that abuse isn't just about physical violence, that it's a form of 
enslavement, I believe, that it's a form of torture, that it's a human rights violation, and that it's gendered. In your Medium article, you mentioned that women of colour are disproportionately affected um, by domestic violence, and men of colour are disproportionately being the perpetrators against women. So why do you think that's the case, especially being a survivor yourself? Well, I, I want to I wanna, um, qualify that. So it, the statistics that I was using were with regard to violent homicides. So in New York City, the homicides, are, uh, about half of them in you know recent um, studies that we were, recent statistics that we were looking at are men of color, uh, are, are 50% of them are domestic homicides. And then the majority of those domestic homicides are men of color committing it against women of color. So because coercive control has not been criminalized, all the other sort of what we might call low, you know, Evan Stark might call low level harms, physical harms, like the slapping and the shoving, you know, those aren't really um, enforced necessarily. They might Mm -hmm. be considered battery, but they're not going to be taken as seriously. And therefore maybe the arrest and the convictions, you know, may not happen. And certainly the psychological, you know, enslavement kinds of, um, behaviors are not going to be captured in our current criminal law system. And so, you know, I believe, and many people have theorized that the more privilege you have, meaning the more wealth you have, the less you need to use physical violence as a form of threat and intimidation. And so, you know, the people who are disproportionately going to be using violence are going to be people in communities of color. And, um, and so from a homicide perspective, you know, those are the people, those are the communities that are going to be interacting with the criminal justice system. And so they're the ones who are um, being inf- impacted on multiple levels through systemic racism and through poverty. Um, and, and so those are the communities that are, um, in, in some ways, you might say, you know, able to voice their uh, concerns about um, how they would like criminal justice reform, you know, what direction they want it to go. So this statistic is basically a product of systemic racism, essentially. Well, it's also, I think, a product of systemic sexism because mm-hmm. we haven't criminalized coercive control. Yeah. You know, and so the racism part, yes, because we we aren't arresting, you know, white men and middle-class men and middle-class and upper-class white men. And so those people get basically um, a pass uh, because their behaviors, which are equally harmful um, and some people consider more harmful, uh, you know, they don't have any accountability at all. And and yet, you know, in terms of researchers, coercive control is the leading indicator of future homicide. And so if we were to criminalize it, we would actually prevent future homicide. What really disturbed me when I was kind of doing my own research around all of this is that it's a horrendous norm in the US to create safety nets and support mechanisms for abusers. You also attended a talk, which I don't know how you sat through, um, focusing on helping uh, abusers instead of survivors. So it was like sympathy was being showered over the people that have literally tortured women. So, yeah, could you explain that to me? Because I do not understand why there is so much of a a momentum kind of in humanizing uh, abusers. Well, I think from the perspective of um, the ones who are interacting currently with the criminal justice system, they are men of color. And so if you are to say that they have been historically oppressed through systemic racism and poverty, you know, how racism has impacted poverty uh, and they have been, uh, you know, through racist policing policy uh, disproportionately um, arrested and harmed through the criminal justice system through mass incarceration. Yes, it is true that we need to uh, reform the criminal penal code so that 
men of color and people of color are not being policed because of their poverty, right? We don't want to criminal, we don't want to weaponize poverty against communities of color. Um, and so these people who are going to jail, however, are not going to jail for domestic abuse crimes. Um, they're going to jail for other crimes that they've been, uh, that, you know, over the course of the past many, many decades have been deemed more severe than even domestic violence. Uh, and so, um, you know, it is, it is important to recognize that we should not further um, use race as a way to uh, add, you know, additional trauma on these families and communities. However, if you take away the race part and you, and you say, well, you know, as a system, all of these systems can be improved and there's an opportunity for us to build a culture of accountability. And that culture can mean, you know, multiple things. It doesn't have to be black and white the way the media has portrayed it. It can mean that we reform the police and criminal justice system so that police brutality is no longer accepted and tolerated so that there's a means for rectifying mm -hmm. when it happens. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we can also um, create uh, opportunities to put people who are committing the most severe crimes, which is coercive control, one of them, in my opinion, um, you know, have a tool for law enforcement to use to, um, you know, basically a stick um, that says, you know, we don't want you to engage in these behaviors because we know that domestic abuse, when it's tolerated and excused, is a precursor to other forms of crimes in society that the individual will likely commit. You know, if, the, if they're going to be uh, growing up in a situation of domestic violence, we have uh, found that that can lead to potentially, you know, future um, robberies or larceny or other kinds of, you know, um, disruptions to society because of the trauma and the, you know, e economic and the educational impact that it will have. Uh, and so I think that, um, so putting that aside, you know, it, the, the talk that you reference um, is part of this movement in the U.S. that we are exporting to Britain and Australia and other English-speaking countries uh, called restorative justice, uh, which, which works, um, from what I understand, with one-time incident crimes. Right. So if a crime has been committed where someone is going to the bodega and, you know, you know, stealing a gallon of milk for their baby because they can't afford it and they end up, you know, defending themselves and using their weapon, you know, inadvertently because the bodega owner takes out his weapon, you know, and he accidentally has to shoot the bodega owner. Yes, you know, we can have restorative justice in that incident because there's been no history between the two people and there's... Um, the perpetrator in that particular example has a history of trauma from systemic racism and poverty, potentially, that has contributed to their engaging in such extreme behaviors out of survival, right? But that's different from when a perpetrator in a course of control relationship engages in behavior deliberately to harm on a mass um, in, a, in a repeated and consistent basis over time that has the impact and effect of limiting someone's freedom and ability and sense of self and um, denigrating them and harming their self-worth uh, to the point where they can't make decisions for themselves and is scared and intimidated and fear, fears for their life potentially. So that's a completely different situation. And so in the latter, you do not want to have restorative justice because the nature of power and control and the power differential or the power hierarchy makes it really, really hard to distinguish if someone is um, really remorseful or not in 
um, you know, an understanding that their behavior was wrong. And in domestic violence, you know, ideally, we don't want to change behavior, we want to change attitudes and mindsets, right? Because behavior can be performative, you know, people can pretend to be nice in certain situations. And then when you go home, they can go underground and you don't know what's going to happen. And and that's usually, that's kind of like, the, you know, the myth of the domestic abuse perpetrator, that he's a nice guy, right? But nice is a performative word. Uh, and so, so yes, this, this is a very troubling trend that's happening in the U.S. that not enough people are aware of. And I'm glad that you're asking about it. Yeah. That's the problem, though. How do we know if somebody really wants to reform and if they're pretending? Well, I think that the question is uh, is irrelevant to the uh, goal of accountability. I think that um, we need to... Accountability for domestic abuse and coercive control needs to foreground the safety, the well-being, and ultimately the freedom of the victim uh, so that that individual can do for herself and her children uh, and, you know, have the choice to take, you know, to leave potentially to stay if she decides, um, but really do so from a place of agency. And she can't do that unless she has the economic means to take care of herself. Right. And so, um, if financial disparities and inequality are at the root of a lot of these relationships, um, which keeps people from from leaving to begin with, you know, if they're not remedied, it's really hard to be able to decide whether there is remorse or not, even if it's you know if it's stated. Um, and so the the key is making sure that the victim is safe and has the choices that you know she um, has a ability to make choices for herself and whether or not the person who's the perpetrator changes or feels remorseful or rehabilitates is a secondary question um, that can happen after there's accountability for from a societal perspective and maybe from a legal system perspective for what that person has done. So essentially putting all focus on the survivor and what they want. <laughs> I, I always use the example, you know, when, when, we're, when we're talking about gender, I like to use race uh, or um, religion examples, because if we were to, you know, place the same power dynamics in a different social construct, people have less tolerance for um, apologizing for the perpetrator's behavior, right? So, for example, for a Jewish person who's a Holocaust survivor, um, you know, if that person, I mean, uh, first of all, you know, obviously Nazis fell under, yeah. you know, crimes of humanity and war crimes. And so there's an international set of laws that govern what happens. And for war crimes uh, and crimes of humanity, the sentencing is life in prison or death right and so so there's no like let's have a discussion between you know the holocaust survivor and potentially the concentration camp you know guard yeah, exactly. for her, the, the person's grandmother you know i mean the most of the most of nazi concentration camp survivors holocaust survivors now are probably um near their you know end of life uh and so you know, you wouldn't have that conversation because, of course, you want to have accountability. You want to signal that these behaviors are wrong. But and and similarly for race, like you wouldn't have, you know, people who are like you wouldn't ask Brianna Taylor's family, you know, to to have a talk with the officers who killed her, <laughs> you know, and try to forgive them. You know, you want accountability. There, everybody, you know, even people outside of that. Um, immediate situation want for them to be put in jail, right? We want them to have their license suspended and not to have their pension, access to their pension. And so why is it that in an intimate partner violence relationship, only when men, you know, who are, you know, um, engaging in quote unquote bad behavior, 
do we bend over backwards to try to make excuses for them and call for empathy and compassion? And yet in any other circumstance, you know, we don't. Well, if the answer is because in these circumstances, women are mainly the victim and society doesn't value the safety and the, you know, well-being of women. That's, that's a great comparison um, to give to people that if we won't compromise for racism, why are we compromising for female rights, female safety, um, and also the safety of children if children are involved in the relationship? That's abusive. Yep. And, and so hopefully, you know, these are, and that's why we're going back to your initial question of why should we criminalize coercive control? It's, it's because we need to show society that we actually care about women <laughs> and children. And, uh, and it's a way of normalizing that it's not okay to be sexist. It's not okay to be a misogynist. Um, so when I was watching the film that you recommended to me, What Doesn't Kill Me, first of all, it was an amazing film. Thank you so much for recommending it. Just learning about the pain and torture that women, especially mothers, have to go through when they want to separate from their abusive partner, but they have their children in question. And a lot of times, which I really didn't get, is that the abusive father gets custody over the children that he can potentially or has uh, abused in the past. And that mother that's a protective parent doesn't get that custody. So yeah, could you explain that to me? Because none of that makes sense. And it, it was so heart-wrenching to see all of the different stories that women were sharing. So yeah, why is it that family courts are supporting abusive fathers so much? What benefit does it have to them? Well, uh, I mean, there's multiple reasons for this. As you saw from the film, there were many, many um, intersecting theories that basically are rooted in the fact that historically, women and children um, because of patriarchy, our property, we belong to men. And marriage is a way of enforcing that property ownership. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, especially in certain religions, yeah. like in Orthodox Jewish communities, you know, if you leave, if you want to have divorce your, your husband, you don't get have have children at all. You you're, you're excommunicated, you know, and your children belong to the quote unquote religion and similarly for other religions yeah. as well. So, um, so in many ways, like the nuclear family and marriage is an institution to keep women, um, you know, under the dominion of men as a form of reproductive, as a reproductive engine. Right. And if we see it that way, um, once the children have been born, you don't need the woman. Right. And and um, and so the way it's manifest over the years in family court is family court is just a microcosm of society. You know, we we have the same rates for um, domestic violence convictions is almost the same rates as rape and sexual assault convictions, which is pretty much nothing because of rape culture, because there's systemic sexism and racism everywhere. And, is, and also in, in particular in policing. I mean, put the p police uh, officers are the profession with the highest rates of domestic violence. And that's no coincidence because in the U.S., about 40% of police officers potentially are domestic abusers. Um, it's partly because it's a self-selecting profession. You know, you, you're, the way that policing has evolved in our history um, from a very, you know, racist slave patrol, you know, you know patrolling slaves to what it is today, um, sort of policing communities of color and poor communities is, is about, um, you know, power and control. And that's what domestic abuse is. And so if these people, you know, who are um, the most sexist and misogynistic are expected to be the ones to, you know, respond to domestic violence, um, that's actually a very, you know, big disconnect and misalignment. And similarly in family court, people who are judges, people who are lawyers, um, you know, lawyers as a profession, uh, are known to sort of, you know, sort of within the lines of the 
the boundaries of the law, yeah. you know, bend as much as they can, right? And 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 judges um, in family court uh, in the U.S. are not um, they are not considered a prestigious uh, position. And, and, and so it's kind of like the bottom of the barrel, (laughs) you know, and, and, and so people who go to family court, you know, as judges, they're, the stereotype is, well, people who end up in family court, they're just, you know, high conflict people who don't get along. So there's almost this disregard from the beginning, this bias towards the litigants. You know, if you end up here, it's because there's something wrong with you. And then when you add on top of that, this, you know, gender bias where if women, you know, oh, so just, just in terms of statistically, like people who end up in family court from a litigation perspective, there's, they're around like three to, um, I believe, uh, 5% of all uh, divorce and custody cases end up in litigation. So most cases, in other words, are resolved amicably, you know, with both sides not having to go to court where you have attorneys and they write up papers and everybody signs and, and you move on. And those are the ones that stereotypically um, maybe, you know, have the mother being the primary caretaker or um, the, the primary c- custodian, the legal custodian. Uh, now, the ones the three to 5%, which are going to family court, which go to litigation, the majority of those cases actually have domestic abuse allegations in them. And part of the reason for that is because when you leave your abuser, when you try to leave, they use children as a pawn, as a, as a, uh, a weapon. And they know that um, over the past, you know, 50 years, there's been this explosion of this misinformation tactic called parental alienation that's been used by the father supremacist movement to discredit uh, the claims, the legitimate claims of domestic abuse and child abuse that are being raised by the women. And so this disinformation tactic has gained so much popularity and in many ways has been institutionalized within the legal profession and the mental health professions that um, you automatically, if you raise abuse, you're going to be disbelieved because they're going to say, well, why didn't you raise it while you were in the marriage? You know, and, and so there are all of these factors of sexism and misogyny and stereotypes about women and misinformation about understanding trauma and um, abuse dynamics play in uh, to create, you know, this, this um, amalgamation of basically institutionalized abuse by family court. And Joan Meyer, who was in that film, um, did a research study funded by the Department of Justice that looked at 10 years of family court data. And she basically determined that if you are a woman who uh, alleges abuse or child abuse of any kind, your and the father counterclaims with parental alienation, you are likely to lose custody in all cases, even when there's evidence presented that is believed by the court uh, um, in terms of the abuse. In the film, they mentioned that um, if a mother reports sexual abuse against a child or even just child abuse or physical mental abuse, 68% of the time she will lose custody over her child that has been abused by that partner. Yeah, and then, you know, she didn't, I don't think she mentioned, uh, because this came out after the film, but in the final report, Jones' report, if you have a guardian ad litem, in other words, an attorney for the child, or if you have a forensic custody evaluator, an external mental health professional evaluating, the mother um, is at three to six to nine times, I can't remember the statistic, three to six times at least more likely to lose custody when you have these additional players, because these additional players and you have additional bias that's interjected. Um, and, and I want to say that, you know, I recently interviewed a survivor whose child she believes was sexually abused by the father. 
uh, and she had to take pictures, you know, of the genitals, and and one of the counts. Is that even allowed? Well, to show the police, oh, okay, uh, to show to show the doctors, right. right? She's trying saying, what yeah. what should I do? And and the father, the alleged abuser, is like counterclaiming that she's engaging in child pornography, which you you knew that mm-hmm. was going to happen. Yeah, that's true, right? Uh, but what is she going to do? Like she's like. Should I go? Because because even if you just go to take the child to the doctor, you know they they might turn you away. You know, obviously you don't want to do it to the police. You want to, you know, so you but you want to have evidence preserved, you know, because if she's going to use it, you have to take pictures, and so just everything is weaponized against you. It's this whole heavy engagement in victim blaming, whether it's society, whether it's institutions, from all angles. Women, female survivors are told that you know it is your fault, and you have to pay the price. And the children follow along, which is really, really, really concerning and really upsetting to hear. Yeah, I mean, in England, you have Dr. Jessica Taylor. Um, she wrote a book. She's a you know radical feminist, and she's a psychologist. And she yeah. wrote a book called "Why Women Are Blamed for Everything," uh, and it basically chronicles you know her research studies and her PhD. Uh, analyzing how sexual abuse and domestic violence survivors um, are treated in a way where even when they seek help from institutions, there's a culture of victim blaming, you know, that keeps them from being able to get justice, from getting um, the attention that they need, from, from, from getting access even to services. What do you think can be done to eliminate this with victim blaming and engagement in rape culture? What do you think is like the main step? I know it's a massive issue and it won't change overnight, but there's something that needs to be done. Yes, I think that we need to be able to normalize uh, in our society, in our culture, the discussion of just how pervasive sexism and misogyny is. Um, and just the way we do, at least in the U.S., with with racism, like everybody, you know, who, you know, there's the N word, right? Nobody says it. Uh, well, there's a lot of sexist terms that people still say and use against women. So there is no stigma to use um, expletives against women, but there is in race. So there's a level of sort of um, stigmatization that exists if you're a racist but it doesn't exist if you're a sexist or a misogynist. And in fact, it's the opposite. Like you get status in your male, you know, community, uh, in your network of friends, if you actually do engage in stereotypical male, you know, women hating activities, behavior. Yeah. So I, I think that's the first step is, you know, and we also have to call out people when it happens because, you know, there's been studies, um, the Anti-Defamation League in the U.S., they, you know, and others uh, have studied how sexism and misogyny is a gateway to white supremacy, because that's that's the first kind of um, othering that we do in society that we're socialized to do. And all of the other tropes, I believe, you know, there's a, there's a gender element to it, right? So when you're making fun of someone who's not as masculine, who's more femme and homophobia, that's using gender stereotypes and tropes. When, you, when you're using um, many racist terminology, you know, um, against Black people or Latinos, Hispanics, they're, again, using gender terminology. Even ageism is a funder, function of gender because as you're old, as you become older, you are less virulent, you're less strong, you're less able, right? Ableism is a function of gender, you know? So all of these different kinds of bigotries and forms of discrimination are rooted in gender um, hierarchies around this male, female kind of strong, you know, passive, um, dominant, you know, submissive, um, uh, um, you know, full and, and f- someone who's worthy of full personhood and someone who's, you know, less than, right? All of these are played out and start with gender. And so if we really want to address 
the systemic bigotry in our society, if we want to address poverty, we have to address gender first and more, you know, make it in a, uh, do it in an intersectional way. I strongly believe that every single one of us um, are accountable for struggles of survivors. Women and men both engage in victim blaming. I have to agree with that. But I do think that men have a major role to play when it comes to reducing and eliminating um, the occurrence of domestic violence by male perpetrators. So I think those men that are really empathetic and are labelled as the good men have a massive role to play. Uh, This was also picked up in the film as well. Because if men aren't setting role models for other men, how can we expect them to, you know, understand that their actions are immoral they do know that but they do need people telling them that as well so i think yeah the importance of men and the role that they play is so important and people don't emphasize that enough yeah i mean it's the same thing with racism right i think there's um enough uh said these days that it's clear that you know to address racism is a white person's problem you know that uh they are the ones who are um, putting upon, you know, other people who are not white, <laughs> you know, these stereotypes and um, policies, uh, racist policies to segregate, you know, to um, limit access, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, similarly for um, sexism and misogyny, you know, men are the ones who are exerting and using their power over others and, you know, we can, we can, um, the rest of us, you know, can, can create an equal and just framework uh, and implement it amongst ourselves, but we can't escape, you know, patriarchal society where half the world's population are men. <laughs> and so if they're the ones, whenever they're in a, you know, uh, in a position of power, to exercise their privilege or feel entitlement to have more power, right? That's going to be a problem. Um, and so, yes, they have to be part of the solution as well. And, and it has to be, you know, it has to be just, just as um, much a, a goal for men to be anti-sexist and pro-feminist as it is for white people, white liberal people to be anti-racist. I think most people, at least in the U.S., you know, if you're if you're an, if you're someone who's who cares about humanity and the you know um, equality and justice, like you for sure, you have no problem saying I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be every day and as a process, you know, engage in anti interrogating my racist beliefs and stereotypes and try to be anti racist. But you don't have that same dialogue happening in men saying, oh, I'm going to try to be anti-sexist. You know, no one's holding them to that standard. Yeah. Again, it's just everyone, really. We need to be focusing on um, the kind of day-to-day things that men say, their actions. We need to be holding them accountable for absolutely everything that they do that is not right, whether it's being sexist to women or racist or anything else. I think a lot of us kind of just block out some of the things that men do um which is really concerning yes and i and and so i think a big part of that is that you know as women we are socialized to be selfless right that we're always putting other people's needs ahead of us we're socialized to be compassionate and empathetic towards men and to put our own needs second you know and so a big part of what i think um can be a part of the consciousness raising for women uh, and understanding how pervasive sexism is in our society is to really, you know, like the self-care kind of mantra, you know, floats around, but to really uh, internalize that self-care means self-love, right? Yeah. And if you have self-love, you're going to have boundaries. You're going to have standards around how people treat you. And you're not going to, you know, give people more and more, you know, chances because 
we, we define ourselves by our relationship status or how forgiving we are or how tolerant we are, you know, or thinking that we might be able to change or fix someone. And, and if we care about ourselves first, we're not going to allow those things um, to happen when it happens. And we're also going to, you know, center our own economic um, independence uh, because it's a it's a pr- protective shield against um, toxicity if and when we encounter it, um, and we don't want that to be a barrier. But but I also want to say that you know it's not just on men because back to the race example. I think if you were to ask you know people of color, if you were to ask black people, at least forget about Asians and Latinos and other you know ethnic groups, black people in the U.S. I think most of them, if you survey them, they will say, yes, there is systemic racism, (laughs) that it exists. You know, I don't think that, I don't, I think the majority of them will say that. If you ask women in the U.S., is there systemic sexism? Not the the majority will not agree because that is why so many people are rejecting feminism because they think that we're in a post-feminist society where we are equal or that achieving um, or even wanting equality is going to hurt women who get, um, you know, rewarded for being able to, you know, adhere to the feminist and femininity, uh, sorry, not to feminist, but to, to femininity and to perform femininity, right? And so those women who are rewarded based on their looks or how young they are, how desirable they are to the male gaze, they don't want to um, give up that way of b- being defined uh, as valuable in society. And those people, you know, um, very often stand in the way of yeah. our collective liberation, our movement. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to tell you just, you know, in the context of last Friday, Justice Ginsburg passed uh, and there are a lot of protective moms in Facebook that I'm connected to that I see posts of who are glad that she's dead because there's there's a conspiracy theory, believe it or not, <laughs> that yeah, I was really confused about Justice the whole Gins- that Justice Ginsburg is a pedophile, which is totally not true. Okay, uh, <laughs> and what happened was, you know, this is part of like, you know, just just it's just crazy that these, um, it's I don't know where it's coming from, whether it's from QAnon or you know other right wing. Um, you know, conspiracy Mm -hmm. groups, but she had been quoted um, in a particular case in the past for uh, supporting gender neutral language. And the language that she was referring to happened to quote this law on the books, which by the way, many states in this country still have child marriage laws. Really? So she happened, yes. So she happened to be quoting a child marriage law which is, you know, you have to be 12 to be able in that state to be able to get married with the permission of your parents. And then, you know, these conspiracy theorists took that and ran with it and distorted it to the point where it was as if she supported, you know, um, child marriage, which if you looked at the actual text of that case, not at all the case, but they just twisted it. And these are women who are advancing these theories. Yeah. I, I don't understand it. It's like we want liberation, but we're snatching it away from people that are demanding it and are doing the grassroots work to get to that. Have you seen it in your threads? Is that how you heard about it? Yeah, I was very confused because I posted a quote from her and then I saw everybody just, you know, complaining about her. And I was like, what's going on? I I have no idea what's going on. That's crazy. I, yeah, I thought that this was just crazy. in the U.S., but you. So, no. so if you, I mean, it's all over Twitter. You you could Google, you know, Justice Ginsburg pedophile, and you'll see Snopes is like a just you know it it's um, a news fact checking site, and it'll tell you it's not true. And here's the sources that show you it's not true. And yet, people keep even when you give them those sources. They still repeat yeah. the lie. I, I don't understand <laughs> it. So see, we so I've actually come to the belief that um, women are just as dangerous as yeah. men, you know, because 
and uh, in, in, in standing in the way of our liberation, because these women are agents of patriarchy, and they're the ones, they're the people who you see the rabid Trump fans in those, you know, rallies. I mean, those people, they have this like <laughs> rabid look. You know, I mean, right? <laughs> They're like snarling and angry, and it's really scary yeah. um, that the level of basically fanaticism that they're engaged in. And then I don't know if you heard now, but the woman who is uh, is being um, Amy Barrett, who's being proposed as the candidate to replace Justice Ginsburg, is from this religious cult called the people of praise that was the foundation and the source and inspiration for the handmaid's tale i mean it's in the trump administration so i'm not (laughs) shocked at all (laughs) it's a very pivotal moment that we're in right now in history yeah it's it's crazy i also see how so many people hate the word feminism i really want to make an episode just on redefining feminism because it's become this really ugly and inaccurate term to be used against women that are demanding change and to see them as arrogant and nonsensical privileged women that are demanding change that they don't need that's what it's synonymized to yeah and i mean it's like it's like saying you know being an anti-racist like why is being an anti-racist not stigmatized but being a feminist is it's because because the right wing has spent the last 50 years through Fox News, creating and manufacturing, um, you know, stories and memes against women who demand equality. And Rush Limbaugh came up with the term feminazi. Yeah. You know, so how could you, of course, they've been, this is a machine that has been discrediting the feminist movement ever since the 60s um since roe versus wade because they were afraid that women were going to have access to you know reproductive freedom and do what we want with our bodies and no 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 we can't let them do that because then we can't control them you know so we have to we have to discredit their whole movement and it's been going on for 50 years (laughs) all i can do is to that (laughs) (laughs) so Clearly, we've identified that abuse victims need so much more support. Um, A lot of support that we do give is not the support that they need. In the film, there was a, I think, ACE study that really brought kind of tangible solutions to survivors and to kind of help them understand that, okay, if you get a score, I think, above four, you need to kind of focus on your mental health, maybe get counselling, do mm-hmm. something so it doesn't affect you negatively in the long term. So do you think these studies are really helpful for survivors or is there another kind of strategy that we need to look at? Well, I, I mean, it's basically the history of ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences, is that there was it started out as an obesity study. Um, and what happened was the doctor and researcher on that study found that there were a lot of people in the study who would lose weight and then gain it back. Okay. Uh, and he started interviewing these individuals and found out that there was this common thread that linked all of them, the people who would lose weight and gain it back. And that was childhood sexual abuse. So he made a connection. That was the beginning of ACEs that, you know, you, unless you basically were, able to resolve your emotional issues around trauma, it would have a negative impact on your body still. Like your body won't heal until you're emotionally and psychologically, you know, healing. And, and so the idea was that, um, you know, these um, sort of uh, uh, different life events um, and experiences, you know, which include divorce or having your, you know, parent go to, you know, be imprisoned, um, or being a child witness to domestic violence, uh, or having basically a series of either abuse or neglect experiences could result in a child disproportionately, um, being at higher risk of adult problems. So chronic, you know, um, heart disease, um, higher rates of likelihood to be um, a substance abuse, you know, a substance abuse, um, abuse yeah. uh, susceptible to substance abuse, addiction, uh, and 
um, you know, obesity, um, a whole bunch of different, you know, adult uh, um, diseases and conditions that were certainly not going to be healthy for you and would potentially reduce um, your lifespan, you know, increase your mortality and certainly um, have a negative impact on your well-being of life, right? Your quality of life. So the idea is that, you know, if you were to put in the film, if you were to put children, you know, who are exposed of number one, that children who are exposed to domestic violence is uh, a form of child abuse in itself, that it is traumatic because people think that unless a child is hit, you know, there's no negative impact and that there is. And because that there is, um, we need to make sure that we're protecting children uh, and the survivors, um, uh, immediate conditions to the point where, you know, those conditions are not going to result in long-term negative health consequences. And, and what they said in the film is that if you have at least one healthy parent that you are um, in a uh, normal, you know, attachment to, um, safe attachment to, then that's good. That's, that's what you need because that will provide you with the resources and potentially the resilience that you need to get through the life traumas as a child. But if you don't have that, then that's going to put you at higher risk. And so, yes, we need to talk about trauma um, and how it affects children. And we need to have a trauma-informed practice when it comes to making decisions that impact children and survivors. So do you think studies like this are really good for survivors to kind of look at and find those gaps in terms of their mental health? Well, I think it's an impetus for taking action, right? It's yeah. an impetus for making sure that you're seeking um, mental health support, you know, having a therapist who is trauma-informed that can help you develop practices that um, really are building healthy habits, you know, that you're mindful of your eating and nutrition because you yeah. might be at higher rates of risk in, let's say, diabetes, you know, um, and you and and that you basically are taking care of yourself, you know, mind, body, and soul. And not that you wouldn't otherwise, mm-hmm. but if you know that you're going to be at higher risk of, um, g- you know, getting certain disorders, you wouldn't, you want to be able to prevent it from happening, right? Um, and so it's a way of helping us to be proactive about centering our own health, but also it's a tool for um, people who are, you know, making decisions about our lives, like family court players and judges, to see that, you know, p- placing children with abusers is not helpful for just the, not just the individual family, but also for society. What do you think that allies like myself and other people should genuinely do to help survivors and to get their stories across and to get that justice that they need, whether it's for themselves or for their children or for both? So I think that we need to, number one, I I suggest that everyone examine their own sexism or internalized sexism. And uh, again, to use the race example, like if you're, you're either sexist or anti-sexist. And to be anti-sexist is to be pro-feminist. So I think that we all need to have a gendered power lens for understanding and analyzing how these behaviors show up in our society and in our lives. And so I recommend that everybody learn about feminism. Yeah. Read what, you know, when you have your next episode on um, feminism, um, men and women should listen to it. Of course. Uh, they should pick up a book the way that people are reading, you know, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. They should read Bell Hooks's Feminism is for Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and recognize that feminism is for everybody because when you live under patriarchy and the norms of patriarchy that put everybody in a box based on their gender roles and police their behavior, it doesn't allow for them to be able to fully um, embody who they are, you know, and, and that that's harmful. That's like diminishing yourself. That's not, um, you know, helping you to be fully actualized. And, um, 
The other thing I would say is that we need to build a culture of accountability. And so if we have a culture of accountability when it comes to our you know, personal lives, we're going to be able to extend it to other parts of our lives, our workplaces, our politics politicians and elected officials and vice versa. Like right now, the media is a big cult- uh, culprit of um, not supporting and building a culture of accountability because of their their tendency to create false equivalences and to downplay yeah. behaviors. You know, the fact that they keep, you know, asking the question about when is Trump going to do X, Y, Z, he's not going to do it because he's an abuser. He's a predator, you know? And so if we recognize that, then we can have certain tactics and we have a certain lens to exposing him so that other people can, you know, not wait for him to change, right? He's not going to do better because that's who he is. And when we start naming it, um, we can then start changing our tactics for what we do and how we respond. And how we're responding is this passive way of waiting for people to transform and believing that people can be transformed, but some people can't be transformed. And we have to just accept that. And the culture of accountability has to include, you know, a space that some people don't want to and will never transform. And we have to create space for them. And that could be jail. (laughs) (laughs) Most likely will be, yeah. Hopefully jail. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the last question I wanted to ask you is the difference between reformative and transformative justice. Um, I've seen these two terms come up quite a bit and the difference is kind of hard to distinguish. So what is the difference and why is it so harmful to society in domestic violence? Yeah. So I don't know enough to distinguish the difference between domestic, uh, between transformative justice and restorative justice. Um, I mean, I can postulate um, that restorative justice is more about the victim and the person who was harmed uh, and, you know, restoring a sense of, uh, you know, providing agency to that individual to have the harm acknowledged. And from what I understand, transformative justice is more about uh, tapping into the full community, into building a culture where people who are harming are held accountable from this collective structure. Uh, and and so the from, former restorative justice may not have that culture uh, and, the, and, the, and the framework and the infrastructure attached to it, but transformative justice may. But, you know, I... I don't want you to like quote me on this. Please look it up. Uh, but just to reiterate, it, it does work for certain populations, like for juvenile yeah. justice, for one-time incident crimes, for um, sexual assault and rape. It works if it's, you know, obviously someone who you, you know, like don't have to have yeah. in your life long-term, right? Like not someone you're sharing a child with who can manipulate you through your, the child and through the family court and other systems. Um, but in the domestic violence case where there is this, you know, very clear hierarchy, it is not something that um, I think is safe for survivors and can easily be used to continue the harm against us. Thank you so much, Terry, for coming on the show. It's been a true pleasure. I've learned about so much within a span of a few weeks. So it's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for your work too. I think that it's important um, for us podcasters to be diving deeply into these topics. And, you know, you are definitely one of the few who are doing so. And we're not just, you know, you're not there just to get the clickbait. Um, like some podcasts are about like having shorter episodes, uh, and, you know, more listeners. And I think with the topics that you're covering, it needs, it needs that in-depth exploration, so that people can be ignited to recognize that things aren't so black and white. It can't be summarized in 10, 15 minutes. And and here's the wealth of resources that you're offering your listeners so that they can actually explore and uh, learn more. So thank you. Thank you so much. And connecting with people like you is just so inspirational. And that way, everybody can learn so much more about something that they haven't really looked into. So yeah, podcasting is amazing. Domestic abuse, sex, gender-based violence is something that I've been aware of constantly and do advocate for change wherever I can. 
But when talking to Terry, I could instantly identify the gaps in my knowledge of the harsh realities of victims who are disproportionately women, especially within courts. I got to learn so much within a short span of time, so I'm very grateful and thankful for Terry for coming on and sharing so much information and knowledge with all of us to help us allies support victims in the way that they want and need. Head over to my website, mindfuloveverything.home.blog to access all of the resources for the show, including Terry's website and articles. You can also find the transcript for this episode and previous ones as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and Pinterest. Please support Mindful of Everything through giving reviews for the show and purchasing my eco-friendly merchandise. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you all stay safe and well during these difficult times. And until the next episode, happy listening.